the preeminence of Christ over everything, every molecule of this uh, universe. We're going to be looking at the sovereignty of Christ. Is my speaker on? The sovereignty of Christ over economics as well. And uh, each of these Sundays as we've been dealing with the four horsemen, I have been uh, reading the whole passage so that hopefully over time you can get a feel for the connection between uh, each of these speakers. And so this is on page 22 of your bulletins. <clears throat> and I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living beings saying, like a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, that is, in order to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living being saying, Come. And another horse went out, fiery red, and it was granted to him who sat on it to take the peace from the earth so that they would slaughter each other. Also a huge sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living being saying, Come. And I looked, behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living beings saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living being, saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a sickly, pale horse. And as for the one sitting upon it, his name is Death, and Hades follows with him. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and by famine and by death, even by the wild animals of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and as we dig into it, we pray for anointing upon my lips, and that your spirit would uh, mix the scriptures with our hearts, that each one of us might be sanctified in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So are we on? Test? Test? One, two, three? Working on it. What's that? We're working on it. Um, working just, on it. Uh, preach for now. Well, while they're working on that, I'm going, to, I'm going to read from another background passage, Psalm 110, which is more quoted probably than any other psalm in the Old Testament, and it speaks of the judgments of Christ, and these judgments seem a little bit harsh to uh, many people, but uh, they are really exactly what is deserved by societies. Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. 
He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. So Christ is not uh, all meek and mild. He had meekness, but it was a meekness that was a strong meekness. In fact, the word meek uh, referred to a stallion who was um, very, very powerful. It could be a war horse, but did exactly his father's will. And this was a part of the father's will that he was uh, carrying out. So we all set up in the back? Okay. We've come to the third horseman of the apocalypse. Uh, the demonized Tiberius was the horseman uh, bringing the judgment of imperialistic expansionism. The demonized Caligula was the second horseman bringing the judgment of conflict and death. And he especially brought judgment upon the wealthy and the powerful. So if you think that the wealthy, you know, get away scot-free just because they have connections with the powerful. No, Caligula got rid of quite a number of wealthy people. Um, they had been hammered there. And then verses 5 through 6 deal with the next emperor, Claudius. And these verses show economic judgments. Virtually everyone believes that these symbols portray famine. Doesn't matter where they think this, if they're futurists, if, uh, what, whatever their interpretation of the historical fulfillment, they believe it involved uh, famine. But what I want to point out is that this was not a famine that was brought by locusts or drought or plant disease or anything natural. If it had been, you would expect that there would be a famine of oil and wine as well. But it was not. This was a famine that came from government manipulation of the economy, and it appeared to be well-meaning. Claudius wanted to fix some of the problems started by the previous uh, two emperors, but it was disastrous. And to understand what these symbols uh, mean, the way that the original audience would have understood them, I think it would be helpful to go through a bit of history that would have been fresh in the minds of John's readers. In fact, if they were to pull some change out of their pocket, at least some of those people in the congregation probably had uh, some of Caligula's coins that would have immediately reminded them of some of the recent history. We've seen that the symbols of the previous emperors were on the coins that they issued, and the same is true of the coins of Claudius. On the back of your outlines, I've given you pictures of several coins that show his horse connected with symbols of economic justice and fairness and also the conservative move backwards uh, connecting with the republic and i have several coins that show his hand holding a pair of scales okay claudius issued many versions of those coins to symbolize economic justice but it was really the opposite of justice the moment the civil government injects itself into managing the marketplace, problems begin to happen, and they happened with a vengeance under Claudius. Okay, where Caligula robbed individuals, uh, he was never able to centralize everything under his administration, so this was what Claudius managed to do. He centralized a massive bureaucracy which institutionalized the evil of uh, civil uh, robbery. He had a department of agriculture, a department of finances, a department of this and a department of that, and he was a very, very capable and able administrator. So making a smoothly running bureaucracy came naturally. 
and it took centuries before Rome was able to cast those agencies off. Now before we look at the bad points, let me speak about his good points. When Caligula was assassinated, Claudius hid in the palace behind some uh, curtains. He was found by the Praetorian guard because his uh, toes were sticking out from the, uh, from the curtains, so they spotted him right away. But uh, the Praetorians uh, pronounced him to be the next emperor and took him to their barracks where they protected him from the Senate. The Senate wanted to wipe out every one of the imperial line. They were so disgusted with what had been going on before that they wanted to go back to the Republic and get rid of all emperors. But the Praetorian Guard managed to convince the Senate, or some people say to force the Senate, uh, to elect Claudius as the next emperor. And as soon as that happened, Claudius actually proved himself to be a humble and a very effective emperor. He immediately pardoned all the assassins. He also humbly encouraged the Senate to take on more powers. Uh, to truly debate issues, even if they disagreed with him. He had no problem with them debating the issues, and he involved himself in their debates. And he did have a lot of good features. Now, if you were to compare each of these uh, emperors to modern ca uh, candidates, I really think Caligula was worse than any candidate we have ever had. Um, but in contrast, Claudius was a conservative. Okay. He tried to move Rome back to the old religion, back to the old ways of doing things. On domestic policies, it is true, he was a, a centralist. On foreign policies, he was a war hawk. Uh, his hawkishness can be seen in the fact that he resumed the conquests that had be, been begun by Julius Caesar and Augustus and Tiberius. And uh, his conquest of Britannia was probably one of the most famous uh, and most celebrated achievements. It's a pretty interesting story. They, uh, Britannia, which is Britain, modern Britain, was uh, a very attractive uh, goal for Rome to seize because they thought it was just filled with all kinds of uh, mineral deposits, uh, tin and gold in particular, and it was another source of slaves. Uh, they loved slaves, and all of this they thought would enrich the empire a little bit more. Uh, Claudius actually went to Britain. Uh, he was only there about 17 days, but uh, he came with a massive amount of cavalry and, and elephants. The elephants absolutely wowed the Britons. They had never seen anything uh, like that. And uh, he was, um, after this victory, was celebrated and given all kinds of honors uh, by uh, the Senate. Anyway, he annexed Thrace, Noricum, Pamphylia, Lycia, Mauritania, and Judea, bringing them directly under his rule. No more self-rule. They were now directly under the, the emperor. And he established new colonies of Roman citizens to secure the new holdings. So he was an imperialist um, like uh, Tiberius, but he was also praised for his judicial reforms within the system. He got rid of a lot of corruption. He raised the age of jurors uh, so that there would be more experience in the jury pool, and he streamlined the judicial system that had really become pretty corrupt, but he streamlined it so that the huge backlog of court cases very, very quickly got caught up. Uh, he freed the island of Rhodes from Roman rule because of their loyalty. He exempted Troy from taxes. 
He gave new freedoms and rights to Jews throughout the empire. In fact, that's a critical point in understanding uh, this book. Even though early in his reign, and we see this early in the book of Acts, uh, he expelled Jews from um, Rome, the city of Rome. He expelled them because they were constantly engaging in riots, uh, the Roman historian says, against Christus, uh, which is Christ. Uh, they were rioting against uh, Christians and causing all kinds of trouble, so he expelled them. But the Jews uh, uh, very quickly managed to gain some influences in his life, especially the king of Israel. In fact, uh, we don't know exactly how they managed to get that kind of control, but two of the rulers in Israel actually put the crown upon Claudius's head. I've got a coin. I didn't put it into your bulletin, but it shows uh, them crowning him. And um, so there was, um, uh, there, there was a, a great deal of influence of Jewish leaders in Claudius's life, and it got solidified in Nero's life. And God was using that to kind of prepare a unified front against Christianity from Rome and Israel in 62 A.D., and it really heated up in A.D. 64 under Nero. But Claudius granted enormous rights to Jews. He passed laws protecting some of the rights of slaves for the first time. If a master murdered uh, a slave, it was considered murder. That was unheard of in Rome uh, because masters had the, the right of uh, death over them prior to that. And there were a lot of other civil rights that he championed. However, just like modern government, there was a lot of pork barrel projects that made him popular including building famous aqueducts, roads, canals, adding to the arable land through drainage systems, paying for coliseums, etc. He tried very, very hard to please the Senate. Uh, he was never successful in that. In fact, uh, during his reign, there were six attempted assassinations of him. And I'm, I'm wanting to say that almost all of them were instigated by senators. But during the course of his uh, life, uh, he ended up killing, executing 35 senators and 300 knights uh, for these attempted assassinations. So despite his best efforts to win the favor, he really wanted to be liked by the Senate, there was constant tension between the executive and the judicial uh, branches under his rule. Uh, even though there was a continuation of some of the evils from the previous seals, each of the seals here in Revelation uh, focuses on what was particularly a characteristic, the strongest characteristic of that regime. And you need to have a little bit of background to understand why famine and economic woes were especially characteristic of Claudius's regime. Acts 11 says that the whole empire experienced severe famine under his rule. Now, there had always been government theft, and ungodly taxation. In fact, the taxation under Caligula was horrific, but despite that taxation, Caligula had not managed to centralize everything under one administration. That happened under Claudius. Claudius managed to centralize more and more of the empire under his rule, and he did it because the philosophers, both the Greek and the Roman philosophers, have said this is the ideal kind of government to have. Uh, he was a scholar who had studied the scholastics, uh, the scholars, the classics extensively, and who wrote voluminously, and he was convinced that the best government was a government that pretty much oversaw every aspect of the economy. 
Uh, though corporate law had already been in place since the time of Christ, it hugely increased under Claudius. And as corporations became more powerful in their lobbying efforts, what we now call the Iron Triangle in Washington, D.C., began to exhibit itself very strongly in his reign. Laws began to be passed that favored the Roman collegia. Now, the collegia was the huge corporation. Some people say it's kind of a, a hybrid between associations, trade unions, and, and corporations. So, for example, in his uh, Mises.org article, The Ancient Suicide of the West, Nicholas Davidson says, the shipping associations provided a striking case of this trend. At first, the government offered concessions to the shippers. Little by little, these merged into demands. For example, tax concessions granted to the shippers under Claudius later provided a lever to bring them to heel under Hadrian. The general trend was for the collegia to become instruments of state control. It was kind of a, a fascism that was growing under Claudius and resembles the enormous centralization of the government that I've been experiencing here in America uh, during my lifetime. So I think Claudius provides a great case study example of the kind of dangers that we may well face in America through similar policies. So that's the background. That would have been in the minds of the first century writers. With that, let's dig into the text. The first thing that verse 5 reminds us of is that Jesus is the one who unleashes this economic judgment. Verse 5 says, And when he opened the third seal, and the he refers back to Jesus. Jesus opens one seal after another, and even though he's using demons, he's giving demons permission to, to afflict, he is still sovereign over that. Okay, Just as he was sovereign over the militarism of verses 1 through 2 and over the conflict and death of verses 3 through 4, he is the sovereign over the economic woes of verses 5 through 6. But angels, interestingly, are also involved in this judgment. Verse 5 says, I heard the third living being saying, Come. Okay, it's the third cherubim angel who now enters into this conflict because there's now a new demon that has entered uh, into this conflict and I think both of them represent spiritual armies just like the previous horsemen did and the previous angels. So this angel summons the third commander to come out from wherever it is that he was bound. Now, later on in the book we're going to see that there are some angels that are bound by God to certain territories like the Euphrates uh, there's other angels that are bound in the pit. We're not told where this one is bound, but um, he permits him to pass and to begin to inflict his specialty of problems upon that nation. So good angels are involved in some way in allowing economic judgments to come upon a nation. And this demon, he comes forth gladly. Demons love to create havoc in a society. And I want you to notice something each demonic writer in this chapter has his own specialty. That's not unusual. You know, when you read and do your study of demonology in, in um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see all kinds of specializations that demons have. Some specialize in certain kinds of sins, some in certain kinds of diseases and other kinds of destructions. And let me just list a few of these specialties by quoting phrases from the Bible. The Bible speaks of a spirit of jealousy 
a spirit of ill will, a spirit of deep sleep, a spirit of harlotry, an unclean demon, a spirit of infirmity, a spirit of stupor, a spirit of fear, a spirit of error, deceiving spirits, and many others. In fact, the various names for demons that are given in the Old Testament themselves show some specialization that was going on. So we should, we should not be surprised that there is specialization of each of these horsemen as they bring different kinds of judgments. Now the specialty, as I mentioned, of the demon in verses 1 through 2 was promoting imperialistic militarism. The specialty of the demon in verses 3 through 4 was promoting internal conflict and death. And the specialty of the demon in this verse has to do with overturning God's economic order and producing bad economic decisions, all in the name of justice. And I bring this up because it's so easy for us to think of things like economics as being a neutral subject. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, it, it is either in submission to God's law or it is a part of a demonic departure from God's law. Economics really is a subdivision of ethics when you think about it. And America's Keynesian economics is immoral. So when you think about politics, don't ignore the economics of the candidate. Honestly, demons don't care in what way societies divert from God's law. So long as God's order is marred or destroyed, they don't, uh, they don't care. But make no mistake about it, demons are interested in the economics of a nation. They're very interested in it. They know how critically important it is uh, to either the freedom of a nation or to the bondage of that nation. And let me just illustrate with the economics that you guys are familiar with. If you want to examine the demonic origins of Marxist socialism, just read Karl Marx himself. Uh, the guy was a messed up dude. There's all kinds of evidences that he was demon-possessed. But Richard Wormbrandt's book, Marx and Satan, shows that he was actually a practicing Satanist. Or better yet, you can read uh, Gary North's much larger book, Marx's Religion of Revolution. And Marx's philosophy of economics has brought the deaths of hundreds of millions of people over the last century. I think the success of whatever demonic rider that was behind communism has made the whole kingdom of Satan chortle with glee. I mean, they've been delighted at all of the discord that was brought through his philosophy of economics. Marx certainly knew that economics is not neutral. If you want to examine the demonic origins of fascism, you can read Hitler's Mein Kampf or any of the biographies of Hitler or Mussolini. Mussolini was the fascist leader of Italy. He was a very um, uh, close follower uh, of Hitler. In fact, this past week when I was doing study for this sermon, I stumbled upon uh, some of the writings of Mussolini. And um, he said this at about one of his meetings with Hitler. He said, Hitler tried to make me believe he was mystically and scientifically convinced of being possessed not by a demon, but by a spirit of a prehistoric Aryan mythology. So Mussolini, Hitler's friend, said, Hitler said he was possessed by some ancient spirit, some Aryan spirit. 
And we believe it was a demon, right? So Mussolini went on to say, in that moment, I understood the strange, inexplicable sensation always produced in me by his speeches, which were characterized by a prophetic tone. And he went on to describe how Hitler said that he had learned from the occult sciences how to control and manipulate the nation. The roots of fascism are demonic, just like Claudius's economics were demonically inspired. If you want to see the demonic origins of Keynesianism, which America has followed through most of my life, uh, read the expose of supposed Christian Keynesianism by Ian Hodge. It's called Baptized Inflation. It's a great critique. Mercantilism was demonic in origin. And what is unique, what is unique to all those unbiblical economic systems is that they all rely upon the state. That's what's unique to all of them. They all rely upon the state to make the economy work. Demons love to push statism because statism is the biggest destroyer of liberty. And it wouldn't surprise me if the very demon who specialized in Claudius's economics is the same demon who produced mercantilism and Marxism and fascism and Keynesianism. They all have common roots. So point number one, Economic disaster is a judgment that Jesus sovereignly administers to bring a country to repentance for its lawlessness. Point number two, good angels are very interested in economics and they see demonic economic systems as being the infliction of a judgment upon a nation. Okay, we too should see things like Marxism or even our American Keynesianism as God's judgment upon our nation. Certainly these, the, these angels saw that. Point three, demons are enormously involved in economics, at least those who specialize in this subject are, and this demon was eager to do his work. But point four, these anti-Christian economic systems were always made to look attractive. Okay, verse five goes on to say, and I looked and behold a black horse. Who doesn't like black horses? They're beautiful, they're gorgeous animals. And it goes on, it says, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. That represents fairness. Who doesn't like fairness in economic dealings? We all do, right? Both of those are attractive symbols. They grab the heart. They communicate something compelling. The black horse, even though beautiful, was considered by the Romans to be much more conservative than the white horses of Augustus and Tiberius. The Dictionary of Greek and Roman Antiquities points out that generals didn't dare to ride a white horse until the time of Tiberius, uh, not Tiberius, until the time of Julius Caesar. He was the first one, and then Augustus and Tiberius both used horses, but one author suggested that prior to Julius Caesar, Roman generals didn't use them because those white horses were symbols of the god Apollo, and they went right along with these emperors who claimed uh, to be divine. Well, Claudius, he was backing away from those claims to divinity. He refused any of those titles to divinity. Remember, he was trying to make the Senate like him. So there was this conservative impulse in his life. He was going back to the ideals of the Republic that everybody loved, right? Uh, he was trying to win their favor. 
Uh, so he talked about liberty. He talked against the tyranny of his predecessors. So that's the black horse. It's a conservative symbol of a move to liberty and justice. Likewise, the scales or balances represent government-imposed fairness in commerce. Now, you might be tempted to think those scales represent, you know, fairness in the legal court system, but that's not the way the Romans uh, thought of it. Um, the virtual community for teaching and learning classics says this about the, the multitude of coins that started with Claudius and then continued with Vespasian and Titus. They said the small handheld balance scales used by bankers and money changers became a potent symbol on Roman coins. In the modern world, we are familiar with this type of scales as legal symbol, <clears throat> usually carried by a female personification of justice. In Rome, however, the symbolic value of these scales always retained a practical association with money and commerce. Now, this is so critical to understanding what's going on here. I'm going to reread that. This is not dealing with the court system. This is, even though he brought reforms to the court system, this is dealing with commerce, with banking, with, with uh, the, the, the marketplace. So let me read that again. In the modern world, we're familiar with this type of scales as a legal symbol, usually carried by a female personification of justice. In Rome, however, the symbolic value of these scales always retained a practical association with money and commerce. From the first, mid-first century CE, emperors began minting coins with this symbol to emphasize their guarantee of fairness and equity with regard to the entire Roman monetary system. So the black horse was a symbol of a pretended conservative move to liberty. The scales are a promise that the government would be involved in the economy in order to produce fairness. And this has been the promise of every demonic government intervention into the free market. They are suspicious of a radical free market, and they believe that the civil government must intervene to protect the interests of the citizens. Now, of course, it takes a stronger state to be able to do that, and it takes special subsidies, and it takes monopolistic privileges to be granted to individuals who are willing to submit to the state, but let me give you a quick detour to explain how common this phenomenon really has been. The mercantilism of the 16th through 18th centuries held that all trade was a zero-sum game in which each side would try to cheat the other side in ruthless competition. So the idea was somebody's going to get hurt in a free market exchange. They, they just assumed that was always true, that, that the free market was frowned upon as immoral. They let the public believe that if the free market, if the marketplace was left alone, someone would get hurt. So Hobbes and other philosophers believed that the government needed to intervene. Now, thankfully, Adam Smith and Dudley North and John Locke and others showed the absolute irrationality of mercantilism, but the problem is most people don't study things like economics that much. They don't care if it's a rational system. They're all about sound bites. They're all about symbols, you know, and emotion. They believe the promises of a politician, and the mercantilist gave a promise like the symbol of scales, and people clamored for economic justice, especially. You've got to protect us from competition from other countries. And the merchants loved it. They said, we need the imports 
to be more heavily taxed. We need protectionism. We need subsidies. Keynesianism was slightly different, but it still involved the state. Uh, Lord Maynard Keynes argued for what he called the new mercantilism. A lot of people don't realize that Keynes identified with almost all of the mercantilist uh, principles, but he very explicitly, I read it in his book, calls it the new mercantilism, agreeing that the state is really responsible to nurse the economy along with incentives. Here's how he worded it. The state will have to exercise a guiding influence on the propensity to consume, partly through its scheme of taxation, partly by fixing the rate of interest, and partly perhaps in other ways. Now, he argued that if you don't do that, you're going to have a messed up economy. If you just let the private sector run free, you're going to have inefficiencies, you're going to have job losses, and uh, because of those job losses and, and uh, the competitions between countries, you're going to have tensions internationally. So he said, hey, if you follow my system, you're going to resolve all of the international tensions that are out there. Why? Because all of the countries are going to have jobs that they need. They're all going to be satisfied. Now, I'm not going to get into all that's involved in this demonic theory that has dominated America over the last century, but I do want to emphasize that it too promised economic justice through government manipulation of the economy. It promised to fix unemployment. On page 350 of his book, uh, he promised to fix international relations. But really, it's just another clever version of the state as savior. Socialism and fascism did the same. Japan's version of mercantilism did the same. These demonic philosophies, they never advertise the inevitable growth of government. They never advertise the economic dislocations that result or inflation or shortages. They never advertise how larger corporations are going to suppress any competition through regulation. They want regulation. They don't advertise those kinds of things. Instead, what they advertise is economic justice. We need freedom. We need fairness. They, they promise the black horses of liberty, the banking scales of economic justice, uh, justice, but they are promises that do not deliver. And let me tell you, we've got to be convinced of this. They come straight from the pit of hell. Watch out for this third horseman of the apocalypse. He is disguised as good, but he is evil through and through. Now, verse 6 hints at the results of all statist attempts to control an economy. It doesn't list every bad result that could happen, but it does mention results that would have been fresh in the minds of readers just from the policies of Claudius. And actually, you don't, you don't really need to look further than the New Testament uh, to see this illustrated, but let's look first of all at the source of all economic judgments. Verse 6 says, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and then comes the judgment. Then comes the negative feedback, okay? You remember that the living creatures, the living beings, were involved in God's rule of providence, but this voice from the midst of the living creatures seems to indicate it's not their voice. It's from the midst of them, but it's not their voice. Well, remember from before we saw that the living creatures formed the throne and it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are in the midst of the throne. So the implication seems to be this voice comes from God himself. Now, whether that's the case or not, really in a sense it doesn't matter because the throne symbolizes God's providence, right? And so it's God's providence that is bringing this 
the, these negative repercussions when the laws of economics are violated. They're invariable laws that are just as sure as the laws of physics. By the way, don't think of laws of physics or laws of economics as being you know, natural laws, impersonal laws. No, it's God himself who guarantees that gravity will work. It is God himself who guarantees that economics will work. Adam Smith spoke of these laws of economics as being enforced by an invisible hand. Now, I prefer to be more explicit and say, no, it's God, invisible hand. You know, don't talk like that. It's God himself who personally is enforcing the laws of economics. But either way, negative feedback from breaking God's economic laws, as Claudius was doing with the black horse and the scales, is just as real as the negative feedback of breaking God's laws of gravity. And we need to be convinced of that. I don't care what kind of a philosophy you, you have that uh, you might have some crazy philosophy. If you jump off of a cliff, you're going to float. doesn't matter what your philosophy is. God's laws will guarantee you'll go splat at the bottom of that cliff. And I don't care what kind of an economic philosophy you, you have that if you have minimum wage laws, it's going to help the poor. God says, uh-uh. It's not going to help the poor at all. In fact, your minimum wage laws are automatically going to hurt the poor by having unemployment. And the more you raise the minimum wage laws, the more unemployment is going to increase. It is just an invariable law that God's providence enforces. You cannot mess with God's laws of economics and get away with it. Now, Claudius may well have been sincere in his failed attempts to rescue the economy of Rome, but when he broke the laws of God in economics, bad things happened. God guaranteed it, just like God guarantees uh, the negative feedbacks we are experiencing in America. Well, verse 6 goes on to show two examples of economic misallocation. In your outline, I say that they always hurt the poor and they benefit the rich, and I'm going to explain that in a moment. Let's just read the verse. Verse 6 goes on to say, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. Now the fact that the wheat and the barley are hurt, but the oil and the wine are not hurt at all, shows that this is not a natural famine. This is a man-made famine. It's an artificial shortage. And I will explain why it happened. A denarius was a day's wages for the average worker, and you can see that in Matthew 20, verse, 20, uh, verse 2. And Herodotus says that a quart of wheat was a daily ration of food for a grown man. So this means that the working class, uh, they were spending their entire salary every day just for the breadwinner to be able to eat wheat. He didn't have enough left over for his family. Now, barley you could, was a little bit cheaper. It was the poor man's food. You could get three quarts of barley, but that still was not enough to feed a large family. So uh, even for the people who opted for barley, there was not enough to go around uh, for the entire family. It led to famine. It was almost a starvation allotment. So Leon Morris interprets this language to mean the necessities of life for the poor will be in short supply while the luxuries of the rich will not cease. Why didn't they cease? 
because the government didn't regulate that part. Uh, it didn't regulate the luxuries. There was too much pushback from the powerful. Now, Yeats, in his commentary, it's obvious he doesn't understand economics, but his commentary at least gets the gist of what is happening. He doesn't understand the why, but he does get the what. He says, as is often the case in times of famine, the luxuries of the rich are available, but the necessities of the poor are in short supply. The prosperity of the Roman Empire during the Flavian period brought conflict between the rich merchants and the heavily taxed poor. Smith notes, in every economy and also in our own, some people amass obscene fortunes while others can barely eke out a living. The sense of the passage seems to be that in times of scarcity, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, I don't agree with his interpretation or even that riches is obscene. God in no way castigates the riches of Job. He blesses Job with riches, nor does he do that with Abraham. But what was happening to make the rich merchants rich at the expense of the poor was government intervention to control the economy. And it was actually done on behalf of the poor. That's the weird thing about it. Several histories show how the merchant corporations have become powerful enough to pass laws in Senate and to manipulate Claudius's bureaus and agencies to regulate the industry in their favor. In fact, some of the heads of these corporations, some of the heads of government agencies, became incredibly rich. You know, people wonder, <laughs> how is it that people go into the Senate, go into the Congress, thousandaires, and they come out of the Senate, and they come out of the Congress, millionaires. There's some interesting behind-the-scenes exchange of of, uh, of monies that goes on that's perfectly legal, that all fits within that iron triangle, and all economic systems that utilize the state give the same opportunities for the powerful to enrich themselves at the expense of the public. Now, since our verse talks about the price of wheat and barley, let me talk about the misallocations that resulted from the actions of the scrinia. The scrinia was the Roman word for their bureau, uh, their Bureau for the Administration of Grain. Sort of like our Department of Agriculture, but it didn't oversee wine and oil. It only oversaw the purchase, the subsidization, the distribution of grain. Well, if you know anything of Austrian economics, you already have a clue as to why the prices of oil and wine were fine. Okay? Uh, they were completely untouched by this rider. They didn't mess with those and why the prices of wheat and barley were outrageous. Government intervention always makes for dislocations in the marketplace resulting in either gluts or shortages, and the government was intervening in one area, not in another. Now, trying to benefit the poor, let me give you some of the background here, trying to benefit the poor, Claudius doled out wheat to the poor every day, and there were enormous numbers of welfare ease that were uh, that were growing. Uh, one book was saying it was as much as one in four Romans was on the dole. Just incredible, just incredible. So, this increase in wheat consumption in Rome created a shortage in other parts of the empire. So to solve that problem, Claudius tried to incentivize the growing and shipping of wheat. For starters, he paid shippers special incentives to become wheat shippers instead of shippers of other commodities. Well, that automatically affected how much other commodities came and the prices of those things. We won't get into that. But Claudius was trying to make wheat cheaper in Rome. But the huge subsidies made for dislocations of grain in other parts of the empire 
Uh, Robert uh, Schuttinger comment, comments that Rome was to be perpetually plagued with this problem of artificially low prices for grain, which caused economic dislocations of all sorts. But the artificially low prices were only the beginning of the cycle. We're not yet where this verse describes the famine. There were numerous attempts to, to fix these economic dislocations. Claudius was an incredibly good administrator, but not a good economist. His fixes always exacerbated the problem. One of his fixes was to try to make transportation of the wheat to Rome a lot easier. Well, it makes perfect sense. It was so expensive to bring it to Rome, and it seemed like a logical um, uh, 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 step to take. Here, here was the problem. The closest non-silted seaport, and it's taken me a while to piece all of these pieces together, but the closest non-silted seaport to Rome was Puteoli, 138 miles away, which made for a long and laborious haul for wheat, which automatically added to the cost despite the subsidies that Rome was trying to get. So to solve that problem, Claudius fulfilled a dream that every emperor since the time of Julius Caesar had hoped to fulfill, and that was to make the local port, Ostia, which had become silt-filled, accessible, navigable by large ships. Well, this required dredging a basin of some 200 acres, the construction of concrete breakwaters, imperial administrative offices, commercial firms, banks, and other buildings to accommodate the huge influx of business, and that required bringing in tens of thousands more workers. Now, he had already brought in 30,000 workers just for one of his projects, and that was to drain the Lake Fascine to provide more arable land for wheat. You know, so these things all fit together. So you got all of these people coming into Rome and getting paid great, great salaries. Anyway, one, one of the studies describes the vast welfare and public works programs took hundreds of thousands of employees away from, take a guess, from farms and other areas of employment because... Why wouldn't you quit your farm when you could get three times the salary working for Claudius? And so that's again going to impact the amount of wheat that's going to be coming in. Now, Fritz Heichelheim, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his right, name right, Fritz Heichelheim and Cedric Yao point out more complications that came from opening up the harbor of Ostia. It seemed like such a great idea, but they say, the development of the port of Ostia raised economic problems both difficult and unforeseen. Ships using the port had to leave empty. Rome was a consumer of the world's products, not a producer. Her exports were insignificant. Her imports immense. Grain, fruits, fish, meats, hides, oil and wine, minerals of every sort, marble, lumber, glass, paper, dyes, clothing, jewelry, spices, ointments, and perfumes. No sooner had Claudius diverted shipping from Puteoli, the outlet of a rich exporting region of both agricultural and industrial products, than the ship owners complained of losing money because of the lack of return cargoes. To satisfy them and keep vital supplies moving into Rome, Claudius and his successors had to compensate them with special concessions such as insurance against shipwreck, tax exemptions, 
the waiving of the succession law and the grant of citizenship to those engaged for six years in the grain-carrying service. Can you see how there's nothing new under the sun? When Franklin Delaware, Delaware Roosevelt, whatever his middle name was, what, what Delano? FDR, that's easier to say. You know, when he started getting involved in all of the uh, agriculture of America, the dislocations led to this complication, and to fix that one you had to do this one, and the farmers began to be on the same kind of subsidies that these guys were getting onto. Now, I don't have time to show how the shipbuilders, and this was a fascinating read too, I, I, I've read a lot of weird stuff on on Rome recently, I read a big fat book on wheat prices in Roman history. <laughs> and I focused on the part of the book that dealt with uh, Claudius, but these shipbuilders were saying, this is fantastic, we can get extra money. So they cooked their books and faked it like they were shipping more wheat than they were really making. When the government found out about that, then the government had to hire tens of thousands more people to check up on these people and uh, get rid of the, the, the cheating that was going on. It's just endless. Government just keeps growing and growing and growing. By the way, it also led to Claudius's administrators. Uh, uh, several ancient histories uh, say that Claudius, several of Claudius's administrators over all of these bureaus and agencies became wealthier than Crassus, who was the famed wealthiest man in the world, uh, in, at least in Roman, the Roman world prior uh, to the time of uh, Claudius. Why did they become so wealthy? Well, anytime you got government intervention into the marketplace, there's the opportunities for kickbacks that, that happen. So each of these government complications in turn led to even further dislocations in the economy. So you can see why I say that Claudius would make a great case study in what is wrong with modern America. And I think I've given enough information to explain why the New Testament says there was a huge famine. There was a shortage of food everywhere in the empire and it also explains why there was no shortage on uh, wine and oil. Wine and oil were not yet under government oversight. Grain was. So anytime you have the government intrusion into some part of the marketplace, it's going to spoil it. Now here's the problem. When citizens see the state as savior, they don't have anywhere else to go. They have to go to the state. They may not have liked Claudius, but with each new complication in the economy, the people demanded more government to fix the problems that the civil government has created in the first place. So there's this constant growth of government with each horse rider till we get to Nero next, next week, Lord willing, it becomes absolutely unbearable. When citizens cry for the government to fix everything in life here in America, you know that we are under judgment. We're under economic judgment. It's an economic judgment because God's economic laws are being ignored by both citizens and rulers of life. If there's one thing that this passage ought to scare us away from. It should scare us away from a ruler who promises a black horse of conservatism and scales of economic justice. We don't want the government's economic justice. We want the government to leave the free market completely alone. That's what biblical economics calls for. Now let me end with two more observations. 
First, Rush Dooney is absolutely correct in his commentary when he says that government controls and inflation, quote, are twin measures which are basic to economic hardship. It's not until Nero that the emperors begin to experiment with debasing the currency and its resulting inflation, but the quote-unquote wise control of the economy started by, was started by Claudius. Here's the thing, the wise administration of a successful businessman or administrator is not what is needed for president. Now, I'm not even convinced that Trump was a good businessman. When you look at the debt-to-asset ratio that he has in his business, it doesn't make sense. But even if he were, that's not what is needed for president. We don't need a president who can run the country like a business. That's a recipe for disaster. Claudius was a fantastic administrator, but he was a lousy president. And massive famine and other economic dislocations happened around the empire as a result of Claudius being such a skilled administrator. Brothers and sisters, teach your kids biblical economics and biblical civics. It's because the church at large doesn't understand these principles in our country that we are such a messed up country. And if you want a fun book, it's a really, really fun book that teaches both biblical economics and civics it's even humorous. I've never seen a theology book like that so humorous. Re read David Chilton's book, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulator. It's a great introduction. Now, the last application I want to make is that God wants the church to survive these kinds of disasters. It's one of the reasons he warns us about them. But it's also one of the reasons why God calls us to increase our deacon's fund. It's the church ministering to the church during times of crisis. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And I want to read you three verses that describe this man-induced famine that occurred under the administration of Claudius Caesar. Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I want you to notice two things. First, God warned his church. He wants us to be prepared ahead of time. He cares for us, and he's given us principles by which we can anticipate disaster and prepare for it. Second, God calls the church to help each other during difficult crises. A great deal of Paul's epistles were devoted to helping the church to figure out how to deal with calamities like famine. They come upon many people unexpectedly, but if we understand God's laws of economics, we will understand that our modern insane economic system is guaranteed to eventually create major problems. It is inevitable. It is like cause and effect, like day, night following day. We don't need to be taken by surprise, and Christians who are wise will start now while they can to prepare for it. May we be a church that is effective in doing so. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and the warnings that it gives, and I pray that you would make us uh, to be understanders of your scriptures, knowing, having the wisdom to be able to apply it 
uh, to our current times. May you raise up men of Issachar who understand the times and know what Israel ought to do. And I pray, Father, that uh, we would not approach uh, the difficult times that we will face in the future almost certainly with fear, but we would face them with confidence, uh, with the knowledge that you are working all things uh, for the disintegration of humanism, for the good of your people, for the advancement of your glory. And it is your kingdom that we are passionate about. So help us to make a difference in the advancement of your kingdom in this society. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.